Hi everyone, I'm Kyle Bechet, and this is the AAF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum, where experts provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. As President Biden's health care agenda makes its way through Congress, there is a tremendous amount of uncertainty, both about the impact of the proposals and their costs. In this episode of the AAF Exchange, AAF's Christopher Holt and healthcare expert Steve Parenti join us to discuss their analysis of the president's healthcare proposals. Thank you both for joining us. It's good to be here. So let's jump right into things. We've got a lot to talk about today. But before we dig into your actual findings, um, I just want to note for everybody that your analysis is done through an arm of the American Action Forum called the Center for Health and Economy, or H&E. I'm sure we'll be referring to it as H&E throughout the podcast. Um, would you briefly explain to our audience what H&E is and what its purpose is? Sure. Maybe I'll I'll jump in and then and hand it to Steve to talk about the mechanics. Um, but but philosophically, uh, Doug likes to always say that uh, numbers are the currency of the realm. That that in D.C. and policymaking, you know, numbers are really important because they they help frame. Uh, the the scale of legislative ideas they they help in in determining sort of differences and outcomes and and so fundamentally H and E is giving us a tool to help inform policymakers about the magnitude of the policies that they're working on um, and so um, you know that was kind of the idea I, I think the other thing is that lots of people can tell you about cost and um, and coverage, but we wanted, particularly in healthcare space, to be able to at times go beyond that and give you a sense of the kinds of coverage that were available. So we won't get into that much in the modeling we're talking about today, but there are aspects of H&E that allow us to talk about the value of, of particular kinds of coverage and, and policies. Um, but Steve can describe the models themselves a little bit. Yeah, so thanks. Uh, actually, thanks for this opportunity just to talk about this stuff. So the models themselves are are kind of uh, developed basically from the health economics uh, literature. What makes them somewhat unique and actually comparable to other things that are out there is that they are essentially demand models for health insurance. If you really think about the um, the issue about people having coverage, it's a question of the market for the uninsured. How do you get the, the, the uninsured essentially into some sort of marketplace? And so what we developed over a series of years, even before it was with AAF, was essentially at Minnesota a health insurance demand model, and that model actually uh, takes into consideration people's age, their gender, what's the nice family size, what's their income, and uh, and then scales it to the entire United States. And at one point, actually, way back working with AAF, suddenly with uh, we had to figure out state-specific effects, and that ended up being a game changer because most people usually come up with a national estimate. But because of what's happened with Medicaid expansion and things like that really has become a state specific issue. And unfortunately, we were kind of ahead of the curve with that to talk about it. Yeah. So let's talk about one proposal in particular, but maybe I think two proposals today that you guys have recently modeled. So H&E recently modeled some of the health provisions in the president's Build Back Better plan, which is, of course, making its way through Congress, better known as the Reconciliation Bill. Would you explain which provisions you looked at and what modeling tells us about the impact of these provisions. Yeah, so so I'll start kind of top line and Steve can talk a little bit more about the mechanics. Uh, the, the first thing, I guess, is that we we didn't model every healthcare provision in Build Back Better. So for example, we didn't model dental vision and hearing coverage in Medicare. Um, there's some, some very sort of small tweaks to 
you know, ESI, calculating people's ESI eligibility versus versus their exchange eligibility that we didn't get into. Um, but what we did focus on were sort of the, the really large kind of core pieces of Build Back Better. And, and so the first part is the enhanced, um, the enhanced premium tax credits, which go back to the American Rescue Plan earlier this year that, that was passed the first reconciliation bill, uh, which basically just amped up the subsidies that people get through the Affordable Care Act uh, for their insurance. Uh, it, it both made them more generous and it expanded them to people uh, above 400% of the federal po poverty line who used to not have access. So what Build Back Better would do is extend that beyond 2021 and 2022 indefinitely. Um, and so that's, the, that's sort of the first thing that we modeled. What happens if you really goose those subsidies and you make them available to everybody? Um, there's a couple other provisions in there uh, that we also accounted for some reinsurance money that, that's being offered, and then how those policies interact with some Biden administration rulemaking on, on sort of continuous open enrollment for certain populations. Uh, and then the other really big piece that is, is being talked a lot about right now is an effort to close what's called the, Medic the Medicaid coverage gap. Uh, and, and so uh, under the Affordable Care Act, states can expand their Medicaid program to cover all, all adult, all childless adults, everybody basically up to 138% of poverty. But there are 12 states that haven't done that. Um, Wisconsin is a little bit unique in that, but there's 11 that haven't done it at all. Uh, and in those states, what's happened is people who make more than 100% of the poverty level, but less than 138% have been made eligible for ACA premium tax credits. Uh, and so they can buy ACA coverage, and that coverage is largely free to them. But people who weren't previously eligible for Medicaid, they're in a non-expansion state, and they're under 100% of poverty, have no access uh, to any sort of subsidized care. And, and so Democrats kind of, their idea here was, how do we close that gap? We can't make states expand, so they decided to create a new Medicaid program that's entirely federally run just for that population basically between 100 and 138% of poverty in non-expansion states. And, and so that's one part, we modeled that, but that they don't think will come online until 2025. Right? They think it's take a while to set it up. And so for the first three years, for, for basically 2.2 million people under 100% of poverty in those states, they're going to extend fully covered, fully paid for ACA coverage to those people. And so that's sort of the third component that we modeled. So total, um, you know, we, we found that these provisions will cost about $831 billion, and they'll increase the number of insured in 2031, you know, at the end of the 10-year line, um, by, by 7 million relative to the baseline. But within that, there's a lot of differences in kind of, kind of how much things are costing and, and how those interact. So I'll let Steve talk about some of the, the more specifics. Yeah, so there's there's a lot of moving parts to this thing. And so one of the big challenges when you do a model like this is that you kind of have to model all these things in. So just to give you a little bit of insight inside the sausage making, usually this, to a certain extent, uh, a lot of times myself and other folks work on this stuff, we kind of act like short order cooks. And so we really rely upon Chris and folks to know the legislative process to kind of unpack it all really is almost down to bullets like, okay, here's the provisions, but they're very powerful bullets. When you say like, we're going to now cover and expand in all these states that haven't expanded, your, your mind goes to hundreds of billions just automatically. So what we had to do, first of all, was uh, figure out, um, you know, what is the approximate cost for basically that uh, Medicaid expansion population? And the problem is that it was challenging in two different ways. One is that you have a population that you 
when you have a federal Medicare program, you know there's going to be something like what is already in the other expansion states. So that's at least a proxy. But there's other nuances in the legislation that says we're going to pay them a little more <laughs> than what they got paid previously. And that creates some uncertainty. There's also some speculation as to exactly how that new Medicaid program in 2025 will look. Will it really be a federal program, more like Medicare just for that population, or will it be outsourced effectively to managed care companies? And there's some, you know, that's where politics creeps in. Now, from modeling perspective, um, I try to think of it more somewhat like an economist, but an economist heavily influenced by talking to a lot of actuaries. <laughs> and actuaries are pretty much risk, uh, they try to be essentially pushing the, pr the prices up if they suggest, if they feel there's too much risk. So just to take a big step back, the way this model typically works, if it's not Medicaid, is that anytime there is essentially new risk injected into the model, that means premiums are going to go up compared to baseline. And there's just a question of how much do they go up. So, for example, by having an open enrollment period that extends that's bigger than a normal two or three month window, which is very certain, you make it the whole year, talk to an actuary, they're like, that's like somewhere between five and 10% increase in premium permanently. That's expensive if it's then subsidized. Uh, by the federal government on top of what's already there. So that's part of what drove that piece. Then there's a question of uh, Medicaid expansion, but we're not going to do the federal program for the first two years until 2025. So then we're going to put them in exchanges. Well, exchanges are expensive. I mean, you've already pushed the price point up on the expansion ex exchanges as it is, and now you're you're putting them into that market. And so in some cases, the cost to uncover folks through the exchanges for Medicaid for that gap could be 50, 60% more than a regular federal Medicaid program, even adjusting for cost of living in a particular region. So a lot of those moving parts have to go in, they have to be indexed by the particular year that's there. And then underlying all of it is letting, at least in the insurance part, the consumer react to seeing new prices. Sometimes they, sometimes people take it, sometimes they don't. I think the, the last thing I'll leave you with is just the, the way the model works is that we always sort of think of like you're just it's almost like cattle We're like i'm going to say like now you're going to this plan but you used to go to this plan in reality it's a little more nuanced than that we have basically take the entire u.s population and we turn them into little probabilities and we basically have a piece of a probability of a person going one way or another but when you add it up it looks like cattle um, and, and actually, I, I feel good about that because I remember talking to CBO and other folks that score these things, the Urban Institute, they do it the same way. And that's from an economic standpoint, uh, like a peer-reviewed journal economic standpoint, that's the proper way to adjust for it. Otherwise, there's too much, there's too much noise in the equations otherwise. Yeah, interesting. It sounds like there's a lot that goes into all of this stuff. I won't pretend to know how you go about doing it, but you guys do good work, obviously. Beyond the top line numbers of this, you know, of the of the the model you guys did, you know, we had what seven million newly covered, but a cost of eight hundred and thirty one billion dollars. What is the broader impact on how insurance works in the United States of this kind of a proposal? I think there there's a lot of different implications of these policies. Uh, you know, one thing that immediately comes to mind is that uh, if we if we set up this federal Medicaid program in these non expansion states. You know, there, there are people right now between 100 and 138% of poverty who have purchased ACA coverage. They've got individual market coverage. It's, it's subsidized. Um, they're, they're probably not paying much, if anything. Well, right now they're not paying anything. Um, and those people will get pulled out of that insurance and put into, into a Medicaid-like program. 
Um, so right there, that's a that's an impact for a population that you know the the law's authors are trying to help. That's likely not going to be a positive experience. You know, when you think about the the subsidy changes, effectively what we're doing is we're moving into a world where anyone who purchases individual market coverage and and is less than 200% of the federal poverty level, their income, has free health care that the government provides. And above 400%, these subsidies are now available. So no one has to pay more than 8.5% of their income to buy individual market coverage. That's going to shift you know, the calculation. Uh, for a long time, we've talked about the, the potential for employers to drop ESI, which is the primary way that Americans get their health insurance, and it's very popular. Um, is this the shift that finally that finally pushes employers to drop ESI? I don't know. CBO seems to think so, but um, you know, in the modeling that they just released, uh, but there's certainly potential there, um, and so that that can shift the experience of people sort of across the income ladder um, and ac- across insurance. So there's a lot of ways that this could change how people get their insurance coverage. I don't know if you want to add anything, Steve. Yeah, I mean, I, the thing that I uh that gets me a little bit about this in terms of the unintended consequences in the market is um, it's actually the fact that you're putting the gap population into these, this putting a Medicaid population into a commercially insured population for about two or three years. That's a radically different experience. Now, in some cases, it might be the same. So for example, there are certain insurers that are serving the Medicaid managed care market and the individual insurance market. Um, so the experience might not be very different. So those like Centene, Molina, in Minnesota, where I work, um, there's UCARE does the same, does both markets. But then you have others that are, you know, Blue Cross Blue Shield of, say, Nebraska or something else like that, where it's like, okay, you're out of uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Nebraska. You really like being a Blue Cross Blue Shield of Nebraska. And now you're going to like this new uh, federal program or to a different Medicaid piece that you haven't seen before. And so that could be a real, a, a real challenge. I mean, Texas is going to be the biggest difference, right? I mean, you've got people that are going to be exposed to having pretty nice commercial coverage in Texas, and then essentially be putting into this federal Medicaid program of uncertain design in the giant state that really has resisted this. And that's where, when I have to think about how to price these things out, again, I have the actuary's sort of instinct of saying, at least they're over my shoulder going, price it higher, you never know, because there's all this risk and contingency that has to factor in. I think the one other thing that sort of jumps out to me is we, we've talked a lot in recent years about single payer, Medicare for all, those sorts of things. And, and I do think, you know, in a, in a way, we're moving towards a single payer system where, where the federal government is really, you know, is putting up the money for most health insurance, um, even if it's coming through several different sort of streams, right? So we end up with a couple of different sorts of Medicaid programs, a lot of people in subsidized ESI, there's Medicare, maybe we lower the Medicare age. So, so you start to see kind of a, a really discombobulated and messy single payer system. Um, and I think that's concerning. Yeah, because I, I think you and I were talking offline a few days ago, Chris, about that basically like it's moving towards it where you get all these different programs. So it's going to be sort of this hodgepodge of different programs that lead to the single payer system that gets sort of complicated because you have all these different programs. And, and there's weird incentives and we're we're slotting people into different kinds of coverage just based on their their financial um, position it doesn't necessarily make a ton of sense. Interesting. Um, you, I want to talk about another proposal you guys modeled. Um, you know, not everything obviously made it into the Build Back Better plan that the President Biden wanted to wants to achieve. You know, progressives have been talking about Medicare to 60 for a long time. 
um, under their Medicare for All banner. But you guys obviously just just modeled the impact of lowering Medicare to age 60. What did the analysis find? And second, should we expect this proposal to reemerge in the future? Uh, well, let me start, um, and I'll just I'll just give you the top line numbers. What what we we modeled two scenarios there, and I'll let Steve talk a little bit about those scenarios because it's an interesting example of how you have to make assumptions. Um, but basically, we, we we modeled a floor and a ceiling, like how what's the least this could cost and what's the most this could cost. And so we found it was roughly 108, 180, or sorry, three hundred eighty billion dollars over ten years, sort of the low end, and then one point eight trillion as the high end. In both scenarios, though, you you ins- you increase the number of insured by about 3.9 million. So that cost that cost difference is really more about moving people around between different kind different kinds of coverage. Um, and Steve could talk a little bit about the assumptions we made uh, to get those two scenarios. Yeah. So the, the the first model that we did that was much less money was basically just saying what's the average cost for someone who's in that age range to be sort of covered given that there's some discounting that goes on with the Medicare program being a little more administrative efficient in terms of how they want to do it. And that that's pretty much where we got the number. We basically figured out how many people that are, are uninsured that are in that age category using data from census and just speculated out from what we already know from the spend of the model. The other exercise, as Chris said, the assumptions matter, was that we assumed that essentially uh, employers basically that have people of that age um, essentially drop you know, that, that they totally get out of the market. In the uh, high end, in the, in the, in the high, high end, end scenario. Yeah. yeah. So mm-hmm. in the high end, but it's like the, yeah, the, the over the trillion plus scenarios, we call it. So basically in that in that scenario, the thought is a lot of employers, because these are the most inspective employees potentially, right? Because of just the age rating and how they actually come back to that plan. And granted, a lot of them are, are they're punity rated, meaning that they're all, all the employees are paying the same premium, but the actual spend for those people to an employer is quite different compared to someone younger, right? So if they have the option to just drop them all, and so this is actually something where we argued internally, Chris and Doug and I sort of like, well, how are we going to model this? It'd be 50%, 70%, 80%, you know, and, and Doug's an economist at heart. There's part of me that's the same way. And we're sort of like corner solution. So it's like either they're all in or they're not. So the thought is like, what if we assume there's no erosion and that's the cheap number? And what if we assume all the employers with that age bracket just, just go, we're out. And that's what pushes us to a trillion dollar. A trillion eight. Yes. Yeah. Just, just for basically ensuring the same number of people. And so that's, I mean, if anything, what I like about that analysis is it, it underscores how fr- fragile this is. Like you talk about so many times in health policy, you have like these, these tales of unintended consequences, right? And so you're trying to do this because it's a vulnerable population, 60, you just want to help them out. You know, maybe their job losses and things as they're getting older in life, but yet suddenly there's like this totally unintended consequence for major corporations just wholesale dump people and create a much more expensive program for the feds and us as taxpayers. So, okay, you guys have mentioned a couple of times that there's other groups out there that do this kind of modeling. Um, We have Congress's scoring arm, the Congressional Budget Office, CBO. Um, We have the administration's Office of Management and Budget, OMB. H and E's scores don't often sometimes don't match up exactly to what either CBO or OMB projects. I know we just right before coming on to record this, we had the CBO score come out on this on the proposal you guys talked about under the Build Back Better plan. Why is this? What what's going on here? We're still actually reading the CBO score, so so some of this is going <laughs> to be speculative. But uh, but Steve, I mean, you know, this is probably a great opportunity for you to talk about. 
kind of how baseline assumptions matter and and why you'll get different different sorts of numbers and those yes. aren't necessarily wrong yeah that, that's that's it's really a good point chris because i mean one of the biggest concerns and and what's intriguing is that you know cbo has had multiple baselines if you look back over a period of time when they forecasted aca take up and and so have we to be fair uh in terms of where things have been part of it is um actually one of the biggest assumptions that's made is the Medicaid expansion market. And even when we first built our state model, state modeling capabilities, like, you know, it was an interesting scenario where we actually, uh, and we published this in a journal, Health Services Research, we actually came up with exactly what would happen from the Supreme Court decision in 2012. And we picked a few states that that would happen. The problem was the states were exactly the wrong states, but yet the top line number was right. We got lucky and and sort of completely, in a completely erroneous way. But what goes on with CBO now is that this expansion thing is still a major concern because it's like, how do you model what a state governor or state legislature is going to do? You know, you have some speculation based on uh, red state, blue states where people are voting. But I mean, different states are moving at different inertia. It's clear that not all, you know, uh, blue states have well, all blue states have, but not all, all red states have necessarily expanded and certain ones are holding out. What CBO assumes, though, is that by the end of the decade, more or less, everybody has expanded. And so that actually changes their baseline calculus quite a bit in terms of where both the cost and the coverage numbers come in. We, on the other hand, are like, we don't know. You know, I mean, we we, we don't speculate, do the political economy thing to say like, well, maybe Texas will go blue in 2028 and that will lead to X changes in 20. We don't do that. If we did, I mean, that would be different. But that does lead to substantial changes, for example, of where those where those assumption changes might be. Same thing with the employer-sponsored market, too. Like, CBO is assuming there is a big difference in the employer-sponsored market and build back better. We could do that. We chose not to. We chose to focus on the individual insurance market. There's been tons of speculation that the employer-sponsored market would collapse because of ACA. We just still haven't seen it. So that's one reason for us to be a little bit conservative as assuming that essentially that market will erode as fast as it will. And one thing maybe just to explain to the audience, um, when we talk about baselines, because we're throwing this word around, um, a baseline is is just a simulation based on current law. So, so you look at the current law and you simulate out for 10 years what what will happen, and then you score policy changes against that. So, so, then, so what we modeled um, of Big Build Back Better was modeled against our baseline estimate. So when we say there's 7 million more people insured, we mean there's 7 million more people insured in 2031 than our baseline says would be insured based on current law. Um, so that's just, just to give a little context of, of, about that. But the differences in those assumptions um, about your baseline lead to, to wildly different outcomes. Um, and, you know, and I think it's important, you know, you know, Doug has another saying, he says all the time, it's easy to predict the future, it's hard to be right. You know, we're never going to be right. Like we're never going to get the number spot on. CBO is never going to be right. Uh, the goal is to be consistent, consistent in how you're wrong. So, so that so sort of keep your assumptions consistent so that you're scoring different sorts of policies against the same assumptions. And that lets you at least get the order of magnitude right. And that's important just to close that thought because, I mean, the Medicaid expansion assumption that CBO makes, Chris makes a big good point about this. I mean, remember, Baseline is current law, right? What does make me a little queasy sometimes, and I totally respect what CBO does. I was on the board of advisors, but it's like you're literally forecasting what you think current law will be when you call that their baseline. 
Yeah. And so granted, we do the same thing saying like, well, the world is static and it won't change. So there's assumptions on either side of that equation, but it can move literally hundreds of billions of dollars in the consequences between the two, even though fundamentally you might be saying the same thing in terms of coverage. Well, speaking of predicting the future, um, finally, it seems like uh, the reconciliation bill changes daily. I mean, it changed over the weekend. I'm sure by the time this recording goes out, you know, it'll change again. And there's still they're still far from an agreement on either the top line spending numbers or specific proposals in the, the bill itself. Nevertheless, let's get your predictions on what health care provisions will make the final cut. What goes, what stays, how big will it be? I mean, I and this is where I can be, I, I'm pretty sure I'll be wildly wrong. But I mean, the way I approach this is sort of really more from a political calculus. And I guess this is spending a little bit of time, you know, in one administration. And but not thinking, thinking that administration, but like any administration, what is your primary goal? And it's clear the Democrats' goal is to get coverage, more and more coverage, more and more uninsured. That's an objective, however they can do it. The cheapest way they can do it is through Medicaid. So my sense is that if they, if, they, if someone is going to come back to them and sort of say, look, you know, uh, okay, CBO comes in at say 550, AAF comes in at, at 800 and change, you know, truth looks somewhere in between in terms of people that are sitting in a room, and they go, all right, this thing, you know, sounds great, but you got to get down to 300, you know? So, you know, figure out where your priorities are going to be, you know, dental, you know, make, make that a demonstration. We'll see what it happens. Don't make it real. That's, that saves them some money there. In the case of meeting the Medicare part of it, what I would say what they would probably do is take the Medicaid expansion and dial it back both in time and then, and also the two ways they, they would compress it in two different ways. And this is, and this is total speculation. Don't do the exchange piece of it, where you put people into the exchanges. It could be disruptive. There could be concerns about what's there. Try to have an education campaign to get as many people covered that aren't covered already. Uh, that's one possibility. The other issue is to quietly let people that are entering Medicaid now continue to quietly enter Medicaid. That seems to be a Biden policy with the border. So why not take it one step further there? I'm just watching news. Uh, so then the other side of it is when you actually budget out the federal Medicaid program, play a budget trick and just say, like, we're going to fund this through 2027. So it's a five year projection. And then we'll kind of see as we go from 28, uh, 2028 uh, forward. That'll take the cost down by half for that provision. But it'll allow them to say we have now taken care of the Medicaid expansion gap with a federal program with a goal toward a broader, more comprehensive federal program where we can wait and see and make connections for the net, for that administration that comes in in 2024 to really think more carefully in it. I, politically, I think that would keep them where they want to be, both budget-wise and also tonally in terms of what their overall objectives are. So, so there, Steve Parenti just solved the uh, the problem for for Democrats. They should just take that solution. You know, you know, it, it, I mean, that's a that's a perfectly reasonable scenario. We've heard a lot of, particularly on the progressive side, a lot of Democrats talk about, you know, do everything, but just cut the time horizon and hope that a future Congress extends it, sort of sort of bet that a future Congress won't take away these benefits. That's possible. Uh, but a split Congress, a divided Congress or a Republican Congress might be very willing to. So so it's a gamble. You know, I, I think Steve's right. The, the Medicare provisions, even though for some reason they seem to be a darling of, of Senator Sanders and other progressives, I, I think those are probably the easiest to walk away from. You know, Medicare beneficiaries can get those benefits through Medicare Advantage right now. Democrats don't love that, but but that is true. 
Um, and yeah, you could do it as a demonstration project. You could say you've done it without really, um, without really doing it. It's going to take a while to get those benefits up and running as well. So if you're trying to get a political win going into 2022, that's not going to help. That's why I think it's it's tricky because on the Medicaid side, because the, the best way to save money, the easiest way would be to set up your Medicaid program in 2025 and not do anything like Steve said in the individual market right now. But what Democrats are going for is is the political win of giving those people coverage right now. And so um, if you if you don't do that, then you've got a bunch of things that you're promising people like at some point during the next presidential administration, whether it's a second Biden term or, or a new president. And you're just basically writing people IOUs. And, and I don't know politically if that if that's helpful. And I just think, you know, reconciliation is is a very difficult process. And um, these are very thin margins. And while it seems highly unlikely that Democrats won't get something done, you know, there is a possibility that that this all falls apart. They haven't even agreed on their drug their drug policies to pay for all of this. Interesting. Well, thank you both for joining us. That's unfortunately all the time we have, I'm sure. We'll be watching this going forward. And thanks for taking the time to talk with us today about this. Yeah, great. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Tune back in for our next episode, where our experts will provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic issues. I'd also encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes and also follow us on social media to learn more about AAF. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play.